As you're taking your seats, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Acts. And we're coming to the very last section in Acts chapter 2, where Luke gives us a little bit of a summary statement of what now begins to become normative in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, I want to invite you just to look with me. We're going to begin our time together by just reading this. Uh, So begin with me uh, at verse 42. We'll read through verse 47. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Vince Lombardi is one of the most renowned coaches in sports history. He is for sure acknowledged as the greatest coach in NFL history. Every year, famously, he would walk into the dressing room with all of the rookies and the veterans alike, and he would hold out a a pigskin in front of the entire team and say, gentlemen, this is a football. His point was obvious to all those who were in the room, and hopefully it's obvious to us in this room today. Victory, success, progress, completion of the mission, completion of our goals, comes from an intense commitment to the fundamentals. Day in and day out, it was the fundamentals that must be the thing that drive this group of individuals to become uncommonly victorious, to become the best of the best, the most useful, the most successful. His philosophy stressed that focusing on the common would actually make them uncommon. When it comes to the church and when it comes to the Christian life, the same speech can be given to us. In fact, Luke sees it fitting to give us, in a sense, this very same speech. He begins to highlight in this section of Scripture the things that become commonplace, the things that become normative. And as we look at these things, what we recognize is that these are the things that are really the fundamentals of the Christian life. And there are times when things get complex and busy and what is absolutely essential for our own effectiveness both as individuals and the church is to get back to the basics. In doing this, Luke highlights for us five commitments of common life in an uncommon community. And that's essentially what was being forged here. All of a sudden, this new community, the Church of Jesus Christ, has been birthed. And we saw last week that the 120 believers that existed at the time of Pentecost was now bursting forth to 3,120 individuals. The question for us is, now what? What do things look like? How do they begin to function as a group? What is this new thing called the church? What are the things that they are absolutely, unequivocally committed to? The first thing we see is this, that they are committed to be a word-driven church. This is absolutely fundamental. In fact, you could argue that this is the very foundation for this new community. The word of God, divine scripture. 
You'll notice in verse 42, it says this as a kind of a catch-all phrase or an umbrella phrase, they devoted themselves. That becomes the driving focus of this entire section. What were they devoted to? And that term actually means they continually committed themselves to. This was the regular occurrence in their lives, both corporately and individually. This became the very fabric of who they were as a new people of God. We see right out the gates, and I'm not sure there's any importance to the order of these things, but you'll notice there are four in particular in verse 42. They're devoted first to the apostles' teaching, and then the fellowship, and then to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And verse 42 is expounded upon, explained further in the following verses. That's what we see. He colors in the lines to give us a sense of what this all looked like from a day-to-day basis in the life of the church. Just make a note of this. Above all things, you could argue they were committed to the word of God. They were a word-driven church. They understood the importance of getting grounded in the faith, of deepening their understanding and knowledge of the truth and growing in their newfound relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This was utterly essential for the health and the survival of the church. And what we see here is really a reflection that the early church was hungry and they were eager. They they longed for the word of God and so they constantly were devoting themselves and sitting at the feet of the apostles and hearing the instruction from their mouths. They wanted to be fed. Every healthy church is a church that longs to be fed. Every healthy Christian is a Christian who longs to be fed This really was the primary role of the apostles. This is the reason that God had given them to the church. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that they would lay the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. This is how they laid that foundation. They were inspired by God to reveal divine truth upon which the church would be established, grounded, and then built up. They would be the conduit through which God would reveal truth to this new community? James Montgomery Boyce, the famous pastor and commentator, says this, that the apostles were people specifically chosen by Jesus Christ to remember, teach about, and authentically record the events and meaning of his ministry. Their entire lives would be devoted to explaining this Jesus Christ and all that he meant for life and for godliness. A commitment to the apostles' teaching is foundational to the growth and spiritual health of every believer in every church. See, God had endowed these apostles with a unique level of authority, enabling them to speak and to write and to record divine truth. Perhaps the question in our minds is this, well, how do we know and how did they know back then in this first century church why or how the apostles were speaking on behalf of God? Well, I want you to notice verse 43. This is critical to understanding why they were so devoted to the apostles' teaching. Notice this. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. You see, they had a unique ministry. And what God was doing through the apostles was authenticating. Their their signs and wonders were means by which God was establishing their credibility. 
right? He was declaring by allowing them to do powerfully, as we'll see throughout the remainder of Acts, these incredible miracles in the same vein as Jesus Christ, that they, in fact, were messengers on behalf of God. They were his spokesmen. The Apostle Paul makes this clear, and he actually uses this as part of his defense in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. It's up on the screen behind me. It says, he says this, in arguing, by the way, a, a chur- in, to a church who had begun to question his authority and to question his apostleship, notice what he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. You see, here are my credentials, is what he's saying. Now, this was necessary in the first century. It was necessary for the first church. Think about the major shift that was taking place. They were moving from the old covenant to the new covenant. They've been given new divine revelation. These men have come and they speak as prophets because that's essentially exactly what they are. They were making such a radical shift with the Jewish religion of the day, God was gracious and he verified that these were indeed messengers of the truth. In fact, Paul, the apostle, writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, again on the screen behind me, notice this, he says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now we live in a different time. The apostles have all died off and God has made sure by his grace to carefully preserve the word that he spoke through them. That was one of the criteria, by the way, used in recognizing what was inspired scripture. Did it actually come from an apostle or did it bear the apostolic blessing? From the earliest days, what we know for certain is this, that the church has prioritized gathering together to sit under the teaching of the apostles. And by the way, where there was no apostle present, even in the early church, Paul tells us in Colossians 4.16, that they would get the letters that had been written down by the apostles, and they were instructed to read them and then pass them along to all the other churches. You see, it became foundational, fundamental for the health and growth of the church. You see, the word of God must be the driving force in the life of every believer and in the life of every healthy church. Sadly, the church is always tempted to preach what is popular, to preach what is palatable, to preach what is politically correct. But make no mistake about this. You might want to note this, where the word of God is neglected and minimized, the church of God is weakened and immobilized. Throughout the centuries where God's word has been abandoned for something else, where it has been treated with a trivial nature or cavalier approach, that is where the church is actually the most ineffective. But where the word of God, listen, is highly esteemed, where it is proclaimed with boldness and clarity and grace and love, where the word of God is dispensed freely and without apology, that is where the spirit of God is present and moving in power. You show me a church that is wholeheartedly committed to the word of God and I'll show you a church that will be powerful and effective in the hands of God. 
The word is the priority above all else. Now let me, just, let me just challenge maybe some of the ways in which you might think about the priorities of the church. You see, there are churches you can go to, and some people will say, well, well if, if I had to answer the question, what is the priority of your church? I mean, what, what is the thing that you highlight the most in your church? What is the driving focus? Some people might say this, well, our driving focus is the Holy Spirit. We're a Holy Spirit church. We're Holy Spirit-led. Or maybe, maybe you'd hear something like this, well, we, we're a worship-driven church. I mean, we're all about worship, and we just, that is the focus of everything we do. It's just all about worship, and, and those are good things. Maybe you hear a variety of different answers like this. Uh, you know, we're, we're all about reaching the lost. That is the driving focus of our church. But I would submit to you, listen, that there is nothing... You know, let me just throw another one. Let's just throw a wrench in there. Some people say, well, we're a Jesus-driven church. Right? That's pretty important, right? Now, all of those things good, all of those things necessary, but let me submit to you this, that the priority of the local church ought to be a focus, a driving focus on the word of God. Okay? The word of God is the priority for every healthy church. Let me tell you why. Because the spirit of God, we know this, works in conjunction with what? The word of God. The spirit of God illuminates our eyes to understand what? the word of God. You see, so where there is no word, the spirit of God isn't functioning the way that God has designed him to function. Well, what about worship? Well, let me ask you this. How do we know what is appropriate and acceptable worship to God? How do we know the one whom we worship? How do we ascribe worth? That's what the word worship means. How do we ascribe and know the worth of our God, if not but for the word of God? Amen? You say, well, Jesus Christ, maybe Jesus Christ should trump that. Well, let me, how do you know anything at all about Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ apart from the word of God? You see, the word of God, the word of God is so utterly critical that Paul, at the end of his life, as he hands off the baton, so to speak, to his faithful protege, Timothy, you want to know what he tells him? You want to know the, the most important thing that Timothy has to focus on as a pastor of the church of Jesus Christ? He says this in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, listen, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This, this is the driving focus of the church of Jesus Christ. Peter would say, by the way, what is true for the church is also true for the individual. Peter would say this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, that we ought to long, this is in light of the word, for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Like newborn infants, we are to crave it so that we might grow up by it into salvation. You see, the point is this. We are to grow up and to mature only on the foundation of the word of God. It is so fundamental that the psalmist, the very first psalm that, by the way, lays the groundwork and is the filter through which we read the rest of the psalms in Psalm chapter 1, talks about the priority of the word of God. How blessed is the man who meditates upon it day and night. The law of the Lord is on his heart, it's on his mind. Paul in Colossians 3.16, speaking to the church, says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Let me ask you just simply, is the word of God the priority in your spiritual life? You say, well, I'm not sure. Well, look at your calendar. 
Look at your schedule. How much time do you devote to the word of God? Do you devote any? Is God even in your schedule? Is time with God through the word given first priority? I would submit to you this. If you don't do this already, I would suggest to you that one of the best things you can do in your life is make the word of God your priority by giving your first and best hours to the study of God's word. Every day, let your heart get up and long, and if it doesn't long to be in God's word, pray, pray that God would give you and grant you increasing longing and desire for the word of God. Plan to make your way through the pages of scripture in a diligent fashion. You might hear often um, when people are describing their church these words, we are a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, and to that I would say amen, and so would the word of God, but I wonder, I wonder, are we also a Bible-living church? You see, Paul secondly, excuse me, Luke secondly, uh, as he's summing up the life of the church, talks about a commitment to be a relationship-focused church. The word of God is driving them and it's producing within their hearts and minds deeper understanding and knowledge of God and here's what it's doing. It's beginning to change their lives. Their vertical relationship with God is beginning to change. It's beginning to transform and as a result, their horizontal relationships are manifesting the presence of God. One of the greatest ways you can determine whether or not you're growing as a Christian is to look at your horizontal relationships in your life. The word that Luke uses is such a fascinating word. Notice this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and this, here's the word, and the fellowship. They were continually devoted to the fellowship. Now this word has been so often loosely thrown around in different contexts. Maybe in your denominational background you have in your mind a picture of what it means to be entering into fellowship. And for you, you picture a putrid colored walls in the basement of a church with punch and cookies. Right? The fellowship hall. That is the place where fellowship happens. Or maybe you've just grown up in a setting that wherever Christians are, that is where fellowship is. Come on over, we're going to fellowship tonight. Perhaps to you, fellowship simply means gathering together and socializing. Certainly gathering together and socializing and enjoying food and all of those fun things are a part of fellowship, but the meaning of this word is so much richer, it's so much broader, it includes so much more than you might even think. The word in the Greek is the Greek word koinonia, and it bears significance. It is a weighty word, and it comes from a root word that means common. It speaks essentially to what unites, to what we have in common. Specifically, when speaking of the church, it carries the idea of common participation in God. Okay, let me say that again, it's so significant. It carries the idea, when speaking of the church, of common participation in God. This is a gospel-loaded term when it comes to the church. You see, that's exactly what happened at Pentecost, right? The Spirit of God is unleashed upon the church and people instantly, 3,000, are added to the church. They're added into the fellowship of God, into common participation in God with God's people. Paul says in Colossians 3.3 that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
And so fellowship, if I can just give you a framework through which we're going to now understand the remainder of this text, fellowship speaks first of what we share together. This new communion, this new life with Christ in God. And 1 John 1 verse 3 John writes this, that which we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, this picture is this all-inclusive picture, a God-uniting, a God-in-common picture of relationships in the body of Christ. If I could sum it up for you, I'd just say this simply, and it'll be on the screen behind us, you might want to make note of this, it is our common Savior that produces our uncommon community. Our common Savior produces our uncommon community. We are removed out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of his beloved Son. We're redeemed out of sin and brought into his righteousness. Fellowship, however, also expresses what we then share with each other. So we've got this vertical dynamic taking place, our relationship with God. And I love what John Stott says. He says this, sharing in results in sharing out. Sharing in results in sharing out. Fellowship with God and true fellowship with others go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. Every time this word is used in the Bible, it's so fascinating. It carries the idea of sharing something with someone else. And it gets incredibly practical. It carries this sense of a, a generosity. Going over the top in your relationships with one another. Sharing your lives with one another. Your love being expressed to each other. See, those who share in God inevitably share in God's nature. If you're in God, his very nature begins to be formed within you. And make no mistake about it, the gospel reminds us that God's unbelievably kind generous, selfless, sacrificial. Can I get an amen? Like this is the God we serve. His very nature is one of generous sharing. Right, right? The reason God created you is to share himself with you. Isn't that an awesome thought? The very purpose of your existence is so that you could know the greatest reality in the universe, the presence of God Almighty. Now watch how encountering this God impacts our encounters with others in the body of Christ. Look down at verses 44 and 45. It says, And all who believed were together. And they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now if you mark up your Bibles, see that word common there in your Bible? That has the same root word, koinonia. Okay? It, it, it has the same idea, you see, so, so Luke is making a link for us. He's showing us this is what the fellowship looked like. I mean, you want a picture of what it meant to interact and share life together in the body of Christ? This is what it looked like right here. Some have looked at this and suggested that this enforces some kind of communism uh, or perhaps some kind of socialism, if that makes you feel better. And I would just say to you that's not true in any 
sense. You see, communism and socialism to an extent is compulsory giving. You are forced to give something rather than what we see here. You see, those things have nothing to do with generosity. Those are mandated giving of your resources. This here is voluntary acts of generous giving to meet the needs of fellow believers. I mean, this is, this is a heart that has been so radically changed and altered that they desire, they long to be generous in response. This was common life in an uncommon community. And watch, what we will see is this. This kind of living in the community of God is what set them apart from the selfish, selfless, selfishly motivated community around them. This distinguished them as being unique amongst all the peoples. I just want you to know that that what we see happening in this text here is not a mandate to go out and sell all your possessions and belongings. In fact, what we see, we'll see this even in the next couple chapters of Acts. Look, even in this section, what we see is that they didn't sell all their possessions because they were meeting in people's homes, right? Okay, so, so you don't have to get rid of your home. That's the good news. Some of you are starting to panic. But what we see here are are really important characteristics of a healthy church. See, this is voluntary, generous giving. And while this is voluntary, here's what I would suggest to you. Okay, we're gonna get really practical here. I would suggest that every Christian needs to make a conscious decision before God to cheerfully and generously meet the needs of fellow believers who are struggling. Okay? I believe that is a biblical responsibility, but more than that, listen, I believe that is a biblical response to the generosity of God demonstrated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just want you to know, and I'm, I'm, so, I'm thrilled to say we have seen this time and time again in the life of our church. We've seen this time and time again through our small group ministry where needs arise, and some of you have been the beneficiary of this. Many of you have, have listen, anonymously contributed to this, and God knows, and God will reward. Right? This is not about you declaring how much you've given or how much you've held. By the way, that's going to become a problem. All right, we'll see that in Acts chapter 5, um, of, of wanting to make known and then lying about what you've given. But here's, here's the deal. Listen, God is honored when his people step up and give sacrificially and generously to meet the needs of those who are struggling. And this is a pattern we see all throughout the Old Testament. Listen, God has a heart for the lost, for the needy, for the poor, for the orphaned. And so we see this this church modeling for us. And this is really, by the way, one of the purposes. Every once in a while, what we see is this. Luke, we've, we've talked about the role of what's prescriptive and descriptive in the book of Acts. It's a narrative account. It's a history. So how do we take things from this and apply them to our lives? What can we do? Like, what, what, what do we have here that signals to us that this should be something that we too should take and embrace as something that is normative in the life of the church? And the answer is this. Every once in a while, there's about three or four times where Luke pulls over and he does a summary statement. And one of the main purposes of the summary statement is to make a statement to the readers for all times in every place. Do you see that this is the normal practice of the church? This is an example for you. You need to take note of this. You need to put this stuff into practice. You see, that is part of what Luke is intending to do in this text. 
And so the believers, they, they were all together. That, that just shows you this. Look, there was a family mentality, and we talked last week, listen, that when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, one of the things you risked giving up was everything, all of your religious affiliations, all of your social relationships, all of your economic relationships, so your fi- financial uh, responsibility is, is now going to be just burdensome to you because nobody will do business with you. And so what happens is this, they're all together, they know what's going on in each other's lives, that's so important. And they begin to share their goods. They begin to help out those who are in need. And we know this, that we believe this is a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were generous, and they were generous because they had learned generosity from God. This is gospel-driven generosity. The mark of a healthy church is the desire to help not hoard, to be giving, not greedy, to be sacrificial, not self-serving. John Stott again says this helpfully, he says, Christian fellowship is Christian caring, and Christian caring is Christian sharing. True fellowship comes from giving and sharing our lives with one another. True fellowship costs something. You say, how, how do I know what this looks like in my life? Be sure of this. If you want to enjoy true and deep and intimate relationships in this place, I would submit to you this. It will be costly to you. You will have to give something of yourself to other people. Many, I believe, have sadly never known the joy of this kind of fellowship. Because they approach church and they approach their relationships as if they're more about what they can get out of it than what they can give. And and yet, what did Jesus say? It is better to give than to receive. I wonder if you would just ask yourself that question. Am I coming to church for what it benefits me primarily? Are my relationships in my life chosen based on what it's going to give to me? Or are you, and this is, this is a challenge to my heart, and this, I've, been, I've been sufficiently challenged with this this week. Am I looking around at people in the body of Christ and saying, not what, what can they do for me, but how can I form a relationship with them so I can help them, so I can be a blessing to them, so I can meet needs in their life? How can I model the gospel in that way to people that maybe, maybe in, you know, if I was a pagan unbeliever, I would never choose to hang around in this life. It's easy, isn't it, to gravitate towards those who benefit us? I believe, too, that this kind of fellowship only happens when we draw near to God. On the screen behind me, 1 John 3, 17 says this, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? There's that vertical relationship. Little children, let us not love in word, or talk, but indeed, in truth. By this, all men will know that you love me, that you love one another. That vertical fellowship produces horizontal fellowship with others, and Luke is making a clear statement that a commitment to Jesus Christ, listen church, listen, a commitment to Jesus Christ is nothing short than a commitment to Jesus' people. Christianity is not an individual sport. Even if you want it to be, even if you want to try and make it that way, God himself, God's words, not my words, God tells us that the body of Christ is just that. It is a body. It's, it's made up of individual members, but each part on his own is inadequate. It's insufficient. It's not the way God designed it to be. God designed the body to fit together perfectly. 
You are gifted in a certain way by God in this room. God has designed you to fit into the body here. And maybe where you've been excluded at parts, places in your life and and different avenues in, in your life. Listen, here in the body of Christ, you are accepted, you are embraced, and here, catch this, you are useful to God and you're useful to others. God wants you to be a blessing to others in this place. So if, if you are approaching the Christian life as an individual sport, can I encourage you, can I challenge you, can I gently and lovingly rebuke you this morning by the word of God? Listen, it's time to stop living the Christian life on your own on an island. It's time to get in community with God's people. This is the way God has designed it to be. And the apostles... The early church and Jesus himself would not recognize the individualistic approach that we have in the Western world to Christianity. It is so foreign from the mind of God. It is so foreign from the scriptures. This is a call, if you haven't got it already, to do life together, all right? And that's what we're all about here. We are all about engaging in one another's lives. And though that may not be fun at times and it may actually be uncomfortable, we believe it is for the glory of God and for the good of our souls, amen? All right, common life in an uncommon community. That's what we're after here. Thirdly, notice this. If that's what we're after, we need to be committed to be a Christ-centered church. Jesus must be at the center of all that we do. And so they continually devoted themselves not only to the apostles' teaching, not only to fellowship, but notice this, to the breaking of bread. Now, the most basic meaning of breaking bread is to share a meal together. That's the most basic understanding, that common language. We break bread, it would simply mean, typically speaking, to sit down and have a meal, share and and partake in a meal together. But I would submit to you that there is good reason to see this as a more formal act of worship. There is good reason to see this as being what we are celebrating here this morning, the Lord's table, a formal time of recognizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, well why, why would you believe that? Well, first, because of this. Notice this. There is, um, if get your English grammar skills ready, a, a definite article in front of breaking bread. So the breaking of bread makes it a more formal understanding. If you want to talk about having meals, you can just talk about, well, we get together and we break bread. He, ca- tells it, he calls it the breaking bread. And not only that, but it's actually sandwiched between two religiously loaded concepts, Right? Just think about where this falls in line here. Um, The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking bread, and then notice this, and the prayers. Again, there's a definite article in front of prayers which tells us something about its formality, uh, about about what was taking place. And right in between those things here is this, the breaking of bread. It's more likely um, that this should be understood then as the more formal, regular observance of the Lord's Supper. By the way, this is the way that the second century church understood it as well. It's helpful, though, to understand that, you know, we can look at this and try and parse this idea of having a meal in the Lord's table. We can kind of overly parse it in our minds because we fail to put ourselves in the shoes of the the first century Christians. You see, in the first century mindset, remember, there's something significant here that we're missing too, probably. There's very little structure in the church yet, right? Right? the church is just, it's embryonic. It's just come on the scene. And so they're still trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, they don't have elders or deacons in place yet. I mean, not until Acts chapter 6 do we even get like a a prototype of deacons that are helping in the church. And so they're still trying to figure out how all all these things are supposed to fit together, how they're supposed to work as, as, if I can use the term, the institutional church, this new community 
But we know this, in the first century, the Lord's table, the official celebrating of the Lord's table, would most often accompany a shared meal together. Kind of like the way that Jesus did at the Last Supper. They'd be all sitting around and they'd be enjoying time and fellowship together and they would be just having a wonderful time with believers and at the end of the meal they would take the leftover bread and they would take the, the, the wine that was there that was typically served at the end of the meal and they would stop and they would commemorate the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would reflect back on what Jesus had done and this was kind of, here's what you need to see. It was so normal in the life of the church to put Jesus Christ at the center of everything they did. And so what we see happening here, just drop down in the, the verses there, verse 46. Day by day, this is, just, this is again, this is the DNA of the church that's forming here. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. What you need to see here is this, that just... Christ was so central that in, in what we see here is being separated. There are times of formal gatherings. That's in the temple. And let me just break that down for you. You, you say, well, what were they doing in the temple? I mean, they've just been saved out of this Jewish religion. Well, listen, again, there's very little structure. They were gathering at the temple courts. It was probably one of the only places where they could gra- gather together in a large group for formal time of worship, of teaching and instruction at the apostles' feet. I mean, thousands and thousands of people could gather in the temple courts and hear the word of God being preached to the apostles. Make note of this too, it's likely that they use those times as an unashamed evangelistic approach to winning over the Jewish people. And then they would break away and perhaps there's some evidence that suggests that they were actually celebrating formally the Lord's table even in this large setting, but what we know is they would break off and to supplement their formal gatherings, they would get together regularly, day by day, like this was happening, this was life on life kind of ministry. And maybe, maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, well, like, I don't have these kind of relationships and that's, what you need to take away from this is this, this was intentional engagement with other believers of Jesus Christ. And, and it was all geared around Jesus Christ. So here they are. They're gathering in their homes. They're eating meals together. Christ is right at the center. This is helpful to understand, too, its significance. There's cultural significance to, to even sharing a meal together. Just think about this for a minute. Hospitality was demonstrated by welcoming other people into your homes. I mean, we have the same kind of concept in our culture, but even more so, to invite people into your home in the ancient culture and to share a meal with them was, listen, it was declaring a few things. It was declaring acceptance. It was declaring welcome. It was declaring embracing of somebody. That's why the Pharisees were so up in arms that Jesus Christ would eat and drink with sinners. Remember that? You want to know why? Like, who cares he's eating? He can eat with whoever he wants. No, 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 no. It's what it meant. It meant that Jesus was saying he was accepting them. He was welcoming them into his presence. And here, catch this. This is so significant when it comes to the Lord's table. You see, to share a meal with someone was an act of friendship. And these regular gatherings were reflecting this new created family of God. On a spiritual level, to take the Lord's Supper together is to share in God's hospitality, in God's welcome, and in God's friendship. Think about that for a minute. See, that's what the gospel is doing in one sense. Have you thought about that? 
Through the gospel, listen, when you believe in Jesus Christ, when you've repented of your sins and you've turned and you've looked upon the cross and that conviction has weighed upon you, but then you rejoice because you know that Jesus has risen from the grave and your sins have been paid for in full, what God is doing through that act is saying this, I am welcoming you into my family. You are now going to be the recipient of my hospitality. My, my provision for you is going to be bountiful. I'll give you everything you, you need for life and godliness. And not only that, instead of being my enemy, that's what you are prior to the cross, right? Now you are called my friend. So when we come to the Lord's table, when we celebrate this this morning, I want you just to think deeply about that. What God is doing is he is demonstrating to you the welcome that you have now received because of Jesus Christ. You're embraced as a friend of God. For a believer to eat this together, listen, this is important, church, to eat this together this morning, this is an act of worship in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and reflects backwards to what was accomplished on the cross and it points forwards, listen, to what we anticipate when we get to heaven, right? Jesus, when did Jesus say he was gonna celebrate and take the Lord's Supper with us again? When we're called back to himself. God's grace in the gospel was reason, and you just notice in verse 46 what this produced. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Another way of framing that glad and generous is this glad and sincere hearts. In other words, you could say they were, they were exulting. There was a sense when they celebrated this, there was a, source, a, source, a sort of joy that they were expressing in their hearts. And, and the idea there of, of sincere hearts or generous hearts is this, a sincerity of devotion, Like this was meaningful to them. This wasn't trivial in any way. This was everything to them. I wonder this morning, is that how you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? That it is everything to you? When you come to the Lord's table, is this a moment where you just, in your heart, you're just filled with joy because you see in the gospel the grace of God that has been lavished upon you, as Paul says. Isn't that an awesome word? It's just been lavished on you welcomed by God, and the response is this, just with sincerity in your heart, there is such gratitude, and I love this in verse 47, just the very beginning, I think this is the intent here, it erupts kind of in a praising of God. And that's the natural response when we think about the grace of God in the gospel, isn't it? It is to erupt in a praise of God that is evident and visible. And so if I could sum up for you, this will be on the screen behind me, what happens in communion, this is just short form, we look back in examination, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Take time to look at our hearts. We take time to reflect upon the sin in our lives and we take time to remember what happened at the cross, that all our sin was paid in full. Praise God. Hallelujah. But we look forward with anticipation. Communion is reminding us that there's something more coming, that the presence of God was with us here is with us in this place, but listen, we are going to experience the presence of God. We will sit face to face with Jesus Christ one day, and so here's what we ought to do now, currently, presently. We participate with celebration. Our commitment, whatever setting, is to make sure that Jesus Christ is at the center. So in this church, one of the things you're gonna see, and and you're gonna hear, look, there should never be a week that goes by where you don't hear the gospel message from this pulpit. There should never be a time when you gather uh, to, to do small group or to gather together for meals. Listen, where the gospel isn't mentioned, I would submit that to you. So, well, that's a little extreme. It's not extreme. The grace of God is extreme, okay? 
The grace of God towards us is extreme. It should never be far from our lips. And if it is, that probably means this. Our heart is perhaps too far from God. Every song we sing, we want it to be loaded with gospel truths. When we gather in this place, there should be no mistaking this reality, that Jesus Christ is the center of this church. Amen? Notice this. As the Spirit of God is working in this church, they are committed to be a God-dependent church. The fourth aspect or commitment of church life we see there, it's normal, common life in this uncommon community. It says this, and the prayers. There's not much given that elaborates on uh, what this prayer looked like other than this. You would look again at verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That implies a praying with thankfulness to God, receiving their food, the, the sense that this has been given by God. But notice this too, the temple, again, think about the structure of the church was not yet in place. What were they doing at the temple? Look at verse, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of what? Prayer. There were consistent times for prayer on the Jewish day. And what we see here is it appears that the, the Christians hadn't completely abandoned some of the Jewish structure. And so they would often be up at the temple praying together. They would gather there as a central spot to prayer. And you can guarantee that as they met in their homes, just prayer just laced everything they did. Certainly their prayers would have changed radically. They were now influenced by their newfound faith and hope in Christ Jesus. But we should see that this prayer, the prayers, by the way, it points to somewhat of a more formal gathering, but, but I believe it's more inclusive than that as well. What we see that becomes normal, commonplace in the life of the early church, we'll see this as we march through these books or these chapters and acts, is that prayer just seems to be the thing that they're always doing. Remember when they first gathered together and were waiting for the Spirit of God? What were they doing together? Praying. And what we'll see very soon is this. When there, were, there was need of divine action, where God needed to heal, they would pray. Where Peter was in prison, they got together and they called out to God and they prayed for a miracle and God answered. You see, here was a people who believed firmly in the power of prayer. They recognized that as a small minority in a pagan, secular, polytheistic world they were so desperately in need of the power of God to work in them and through them. Prayer was the way in which they demonstrated their dependence upon God. Sadly, prayer is one of the most neglected privileges of the Christian life. It's also one of the most neglected privileges of the church's life. One of the primary reasons why the church in North America and perhaps in other places around the world, one of the primary reasons why the church is so weak and its voice is so muted, I am convinced, is because of the church's failure to pray. We have declared by our prayerlessness that we don't need God. That's what prayerlessness is. It's saying, God, thank you, I got this. A prayerless church, though, is a powerless church. A prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. So I guess the question that we need to ask is this, do we want to experience the power of God or not? Do we want to be useful in the hands of God or not? Do we want to see people saved for the glory of God or not? 
Do we want to see victory and growth in our Christian lives or not? Do we want to see God's power moving and transforming our homes and our marriages and our, you know, our other relationships in our life? Do we want to see God give us influence in our workplace or not? Because if we don't, then we won't pray. If we do, if we long for those things, if we believe that God will do those things, we will be on our faces before God. We will get on our knees before God and we will call out to God with persistence. We will ask, we will knock with persistence. We will pray, as Paul says, without ceasing. And we will pray believing that God is faithful and true. Prayer is made possible because of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Jesus Christ grants us access to God the Father. We now approach God because we have a faithful high priest whose ear, by the way, the ear of God has been turned and inclined toward us all because of Jesus Christ. So we enter into the presence of God with boldness and confidence. Prayer must become the new norm It must become common life in an uncommon community. And lastly, what we see is this, that the healthy early church and every church thereafter must be committed to be a gospel-proclaiming church. And this isn't stated explicitly in the text. I'm sure you've noted that already. But just look at verse 47 and, and tell me that we can't see evangelism and witness screaming through every aspect of each of these commitments. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think that this is both a result of the things that we've just discussed as well as a a natural overflow of the heart that had been so radically changed by Jesus Christ. I said this last week, let me say it again. Listen, saved people tell people. Saved people tell people. But you only tell people what you're excited about, right? If you're not really excited about your salvation, you need to question, you need to question why that is. What is it that has the affection of your heart more than Jesus Christ? Who is it that has the affection of your heart more than Jesus Christ? Witnessing was something that seemed to be so ingrained in everyday life for the believers of Jesus Christ. I mean, they're gathering in the temple and there's, they're surrounded by Jews who have just crucified Jesus. And they're sitting there gathering and the apostles are teaching boldly and proclaiming the truth that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, the long-awaited, long-anticipated Messiah of the Old Testament. And there's Jews probably all around hearing this. Asking questions, engaging with the believers who are, who are unashamedly, boldly sharing their faith. And we see that the apostles will begin to systematically march through Jerusalem and begin to share their faith with such boldness, regardless of the results and regardless of the consequences. God's people, I believe that's just embedded in this text. Listen, they were so preoccupied, they, or excuse me, they weren't so preoccupied with learning, caring, worshiping, and praying that they somehow forgot about witnessing. You know, the greatest way to evangelize and to witness is to do it. <laughs> How's that for an answer? It's to do it. It's to talk about your faith. 
there's no magic kind of to this. You, you got to just get out there. You got to use your sphere of influence. You got to talk to people that you know and love. And you got you to just live the gospel in your workplace, but don't forget to declare the gospel when God gives you opportunity. And I just want to just point out really quickly as we close our time together, three things we can learn from their evangelism here. Just notice this. First is this, that Jesus did it. Jesus did it. You see that? The Lord added. The Lord did it. That's, that's Jesus Christ that they're talking about here. Yes, he did it through the preaching. Yes, through the witness of the church. Yes, through the love seen in this uncommon community that garnered favor with all the people. That is undeniable as you read through this text. But you cannot get away from this reality. He did it. The Lord was the one who was working in their hearts. The Lord was the one who was softening them to hear the gospel and even respond to them. The Bible tells us that the Lord grants repentance. It is a gift from God and that the Lord grants salvation. And at the end of the day, that's because only the Lord Jesus Christ will get all the glory. Amen? Secondly, just notice notice this. Uh, He added to their number. It's very simple and clear in the text, but here's the the sense of what I want to convey to you. He did not add them to the church without saving them, and he does not save anyone without adding them to the church. It's just, look, church membership and conversion are linked together. They always have been. If you're saved, you need to be actively engaged in a local church. And this is, again, this is not just, we want you to join our, this is God's design. It's incongruent to say that you are a follower of Jesus Christ and not be fellowshipping with the believers. Salvation, church membership, clearly linked there. Thirdly, just notice this. He did so, this is amazing, daily. Did you notice that? Wouldn't you love to see this kind of revival? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The implication is this. This was a regular occurrence. John Stott says this. The early church's evangelism was not an occasional or sporadic activity. Take that to heart. I'm, I'm certainly receiving this from my own heart. Just as their worship was daily, so was their witness. Praise and proclamation were both the natural overflow of hearts full of the Holy Spirit. And as their outreach was continuous, so continuously converts were being added. We need, I love this, just listen, listen church, we need to recover this expectation of steady and uninterrupted church growth. Wow. How sad is it that we're content, right? How sad is it that we're kind of like, well, maybe, maybe the Lord will, will grow the church. No, listen, we need to believe and we need to be actively engaged in evangelizing the lost world, believing that God will respond as he promises to do so. He is building his church. He is building his church. And what we see here is so, so fundamentally important. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a football These are the fundamental building blocks of a healthy church. We have them lined our room for a reason. And the only one you don't see on there is this idea of fellowship or uncommon community because we believe that all of these these things will produce that in our midst. The things that never change and the things that God always blesses, those are the things we must pay close attention to. A life that is passionately committed to God's word, to God's people, 
to God's Son, to God's power, and to God's salvation. We're a church committed to common life in an uncommon community.